Well, welcome all you brave people for coming out tonight in the midst of this New Orleans weather. For those of you watching from home, thanks for watching. Um, but I must admit, you know, you remember last week, if you watched last week, I kind of made fun of weathermen. Do you remember that? I think they're getting back at me. I'm thinking that I created this somehow or another. Well, welcome to week two of Alpha. Uh, excited to have you here. Excited for those of you watching live stream. Thank you. Uh, I know some of you guys are watching not on Tuesday night, but watching the recording on Wednesday night and other nights. And we thank you for doing that as well. Want to welcome you to join us live if you want to, because the food's been half decent from what I understand, actually beyond half decent. And uh, so, but thank you for being here. Thank you for those who are joining us via uh, the internet. Um, so welcome as well to week two of Alpha. Now, for how many of you guys were here, um, not here last week, just a quick show of hands. Okay, great. Thank you so much. So I'm going to give you a quick, like a real quick overview um, for those of you who weren't here, uh, much of our discussion last week revolved around faith. And we talked about faith. You know, we typically think of faith in terms of religion, but faith is something you and I exercise all the time, right? You didn't meet the chef tonight, but you ate. You had no idea what may have been in your food. You, you drove here tonight. Not a lot of faith driving this kind of weather. You get on an airplane uh, at, in faith. Uh, we don't know that we're going to make it back to our pillows tonight, do we? But we expect that we will, but it's faith, nonetheless faith. You know, there's 150,000 people on the planet that woke up this morning that died before this day was out. In the United States of America, there's over 7,700 people by an average that will not live or did not live through the day. Uh, those are some interesting statistics in the fact, the moment we begin to live is the moment we begin to die. And so we talked about this issue is what is my life built around? What do I believe? Why do I believe in? And you may also remember that I, I, I asked a question concerning how many people, and I, I don't know if I asked you guys so much, but I'll let you know that in the past, when this room is full of people, uh, I will ask how many of you believe there's something on the other side of your last heartbeat and you believe it's going to be good. Well, <clears throat> in a room of over 200 people, virtually every hand goes up. And I want to show you this. I'm not just making up that we have 200 people. So this is what a pre-COVID alpha looks like. That's, that's a lot of people. Now, you may also see that they're, they look kind of weird. Uh, they're not doing an impression of Mickey Mouse. They're actually doing what's called the alpha position. And we had to use it last week, didn't we? Because it really does help you here. You look weird, but it really does help you here. So some of you may want to employ that tonight. So I challenged us as to why we would spend so much time critically <clears throat> researching things that will last so little. So remember last week, I, 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 for those of you who weren't here, you're not going to remember, but uh, we said that this was the dash. This is physical life, and it lasts such a brief period of time. And if you believe there's something on the other side of your last heartbeat that's going to last forever, that's, we're talking about something that lasts forever. So why do we spend so much time? Not that we shouldn't think critically about things in the short period of time we have on the earth, but we spend so much time thinking about the dash and not thinking about the line. And we say we believe there's something on the other side of our last heartbeat. We, we're hoping it's going to be good. But why do we spend so much time 
fretting over make, choosing the right vacation spot, the types of car. Uh, God forbid we don't buy the best brand of rechargeable drill. And I know my son would want to always buy the best brand of rechargeable drills. Make sure we got the right cell phone policies. But for some reason, when it comes to what's on the other side of our last heartbeat that's la- going to last forever, we say, well, we, we hope there's something there that's going to be good. We, we think so. We pray that there will be. I hope I die on a good day. Um, but we really don't know. Can we know? Can you know? Well, if you hang around to week four, I'm going to tell you that the scripture says you can know. But each of us have a worldview, regardless of our intellect or our status in life. And that worldview or that philosophy is held by faith. We are faith people. And as I said before, faith is something beyond religion. And we need to understand that when we incorporate faith, we incorporate it into every aspect of our lives. So tonight we're going to talk about the topic. The topic is who is Jesus? Now, you may think that's a dumb question for those of us who grew up in the United States of America and went to church maybe almost every Sunday. Um, But just personally, I believed in a Jesus that did not exist and created a fictitious character named Jesus Christ not to be found in the pages of the Bible at all. But when I was introduced to the, the Jesus Christ of history, not the Jesus Christ I had created out of my personal stereotyping conveniency, and I became a follower of Jesus Christ 45 years ago this month. Um, he changed my life completely. He changed my life completely. But it was then that I began to study some evidence to learn that if there was reason or rationale to consider faith in the person and the claims of Jesus Christ and the Bible, I began to look at the evidence. What is the evidence? We talked a lot about that last week. Well, one of the things, if you want to turn to page 12 in your, in your manual, and hopefully you're watching, you've got a manual. If you don't have a, a manual or a, a, a study guide, just let us know. You can, e- you can email us at alpha at lakeviewchristiancenter.com. We will mail you, somehow get to you um, a workbook if you'd like. Um, but he existed. You see that on page 12. Now look, there is no critically thinking, rational, unbiased historian who believes that Jesus Christ, the Bible, was a fable. If so, and just think about this, if so, every other historical figure has to be brought into question. Can we really believe that there was a Caesar? Can we believe that there was a Plato? Can we believe there was a Socrates or Aristotle or Attila the Hun? Can we believe any of those things if we're not going to believe that Jesus was a historical figure? And why do I say that? Based on the evidence. There are extra-biblical accounts of Jesus. When I say extra-biblical accounts, obviously I mean by that comments, statements, writings about the person of Jesus that are, that are outside of the pages of Scripture. You've had, if, if you studied history, if you studied ancient history, these names are going to mean something to you. Uh, names like Roman uh, historians like Josephus or Suetonius, uh, Pliny, um, 
Even the disciples of Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about the Matthew, Mark, Luke's, and John's, and Paul's. I'm talking about other disciples of Jesus who are not found in the pages of the Scripture that wrote extra-biblically. So we have all these, these written literary um, manuscripts that tell us and show us of this Jesus, was a, that he was a historical figure. Um, the most, uh, arguably the most uh, noted and famous Roman historian was a guy by the name of Cornelius Tacitus. And this is what Cornelius Tacitus had to say in his, uh, his most famous work called The Annals. He said, consequently, to get rid of the report that he had burned Rome, that is Nero, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty. We're going to talk more about what that extreme penalty was a little bit later. During the reign of Tiberius, at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Now, if you read the Gospel of Luke, you will, you will see Tiberius. You will see Pontius Pilate. You, these are historical figures and historical writers that are corroborating what is in the scriptures. And Cornelius Tacitus was no friend of Christianity at all. He was quite the antagonist. But a good question when we talk about the Bible and Jesus and the New Testament in particular, which speaks of Christ, how do we know that the New Testament hasn't been changed over the years? I mean, that's, that's a couple of thousand years ago that we're talking about. How can we possibly know that the original document, what the original documents said, and that they are anywhere at all akin to what we're reading today? That's, that's a good question. I'm not quite sure which of you asked that, but it's a really good question. And there is tremendous evidence for the validity of the New Testament. Well, I want you to, uh, I want you to take, uh, in your book, you're going to be on page 13. There's a science called, and I'd like you to write this down in your book. There's a literary science called textual criticism. Okay, this is, this is not today that what somebody would think that would be criticizing your texts. That is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about textual criticism, taking ancient manuscripts, ancient texts, and putting them through scientific critical um, determinations. And so within textual criticism, there are, there's something called, you want you to write this down too if you'd like to, called the bibliographical, bibliographical test. And that bibliographical test has three parts. And these are the three parts that determine the validity of an ancient manuscript, okay, within textual criticism. Okay, so one is the quantity of the manuscripts. How many are there? Okay, today, how many, the word manuscript, handwritten, manu, hand, script, written, how many manuscripts are there of that, of that uh, writing from a couple of thousand years ago? Do, do we have any? How many do we have? And so one of the, the first tests in the bibliographical test is how many copies do we have? The second test is, is the quality, the quality of the manuscripts. So the first test, quantity. Second test, quality of the manuscripts, which doesn't mean how well they're preserved. We would typically think that. What's its quality? The quality is, let's say you have 10 ancient manuscripts. Is the first one we found 
saying the same thing as the tenth one we found or the fifth one we found. So when we talk about quality, we're talking about consistency. Do they, does one manuscript corroborate the other manuscript or conflict with the other manuscript? So we're looking for consistency. That makes sense? And then the, th the third uh, criteria in the bibli bibliographical test is time span. This is, this is really interesting because what this is basically saying is, let's say a, um, a manuscript is written in 50 AD, or let's say it's written in 400 BC. When do we see the first copy? When does the first copy of that original autograph show up? What have we found? What have, archaeolo what have archaeologists found? And so quantity of manuscripts quality of manuscripts and the time span between the original writing and the copies that we see. Let me just give you some examples here. And you find these in, in, your, um, in your manual as well. Let's just take a look first at a guy by the name of Herodotus. Okay? He was a Greek historian. He, he, the Greco-Persian Wars is what he wrote about. He wrote between 488 and 428 B.C., Earliest copy we have is 900 years after the autograph, after he originally wrote it. We've got a 1,300-year time lapse, and we have 117 manuscripts of Herodotus' writing. That's fine. Okay, well, let's just look here at Thucydides. He was a Greek historian, wrote of the Peloponnesian Wars. He wrote around the same time as Herodotus, 460 to 400 B.C. Earliest copy around 900. We, again, we have a time lapse of over 1,300 years, and we got about 104 manuscripts. All right, so from the time that he wrote to the time we have any copies, we've got 1,350 years. We've got no problem believing Herodotus. We've got no problem believing Thucydides. We've got no problem believing this next guy, Livy. He was a Roman historian, one of the greatest Roman historians. He wrote the history of Rome, wrote between 59 B.C. and A.D. 17. His earliest copies are 400, time lapse. You can see the time lapse there, and we have about 169 manuscripts, okay? Not, we think that would be a lot. Seems like a lot, okay? But we plow down on Roman history and we teach Roman history based on guys just like Livy and Thucydides and Herodotus. So this is what we do. Well, let's just take a look for a moment here at the New Testament, all right? New Testament is the testimony of Jesus Christ in the history of the church. It's written between AD 440 and 100. We have earliest manuscripts, it's AD 130. We have partial manuscripts to 130. And we have full manuscripts showing up about 350 uh, AD. Time lapse 40 to 300 years. That's, for, that's, that's interesting, isn't it? Now, how many copies do we have? Well, there's right about 24,000 copies of the New Testament manuscripts. Now, we're not talking about Xerox copies or, you know, we're not talking about that. We're talking about handwritten copies. 24,000 existing copies and the accuracy. Now, what, okay, so remember, quantity, 24,000. Okay, time span, about 40 to 300 years. Now, the quality is what we're looking for, right? The consistency. What are those 24,000 copies? Are they consistent? Are they contradicting? What are they doing? Well, we have, it's been determined by textual critics that 99.5 5% of the New Testament is saying the same thing. And where there is any variance, it has nothing to do with the teachings of Jesus. It may be uh, verb tenses or the way a sentence is structured. It doesn't at all damage the teachings of the New Testament. It's fairly fascinating. 
Now, it doesn't mean that the New Testament is the Word of God, but it does mean if you're going to look at history, you're going to look at Herodotus and Thucydides and Pliny and Livy and Josephus and Sidonius and all these other guys and go, I believe them more than I believe this. I didn't know this. Did you know this? I didn't know that. So if we're just speaking historically, just under textual criticism, the New Testament blows out of the water every other ancient manuscript in terms of its historicity and the quality, the accuracy of the documents. It's fascinating. Fascinating about the New Testament is that there were many still alive as these documents were being circulated. See, we still, we have documents that, that were there when people were hearing first and second generation about the person of Jesus Christ. Not generations, not centuries after. Again, like I said, it doesn't mean it's the inspired word of God. But I have to look at this historically as a reliable document. F.F. Bruce was the professor of New Testament studies at the University of Manchester. This is what he had to say. Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. I almost forgot this. Ah, you don't want me to forget this because this, if there's any, any, uh, any uh, ancient historian or writer, you remember Homer, don't you? Homer, you know, Homer's a great guy here. He, sorry, not that Homer. Um, yeah, that Homer. Homer wrote the Iliad. Um, he wrote the Trojan War. He, there are about 1,700 copies. Let's see here if I got that. Uh, written about 800 B.C. Uh, earliest copy, 400. Okay. Extant manuscripts, 1,757. Okay. That's pretty amazing. And so what we're looking at here is, uh, yeah, I want to take us now to F.F. Bruce, where I was a minute ago. He says, this is what F.F. Bruce says, professor of New Testament criticism at University of Manchester. He wrote, a, his textbook was the New Testament documents, are they reliable? He says, it was not friendly witnesses that the early preachers had to reckon with. Talking about the disciples. There were others less well disposed who were also conversant with the facts of the ministry and the death of Jesus. The disciples could not afford to risk inaccuracies, not to speak willful manipulation of the facts which would at once be exposed by those who would be only too glad to do so. On the contrary, one of the strong points, points of the original apostolic preaching is the, listen to this, the confident appeal to the knowledge of the hearers. They, do not, they not only said, we are witnesses of these things, but also, as you yourselves know, had the tendency been to depart from the facts in any material way, pardon me, in any material respect, the possible pressure of hostile witnesses in the audience would have served as a further corrective. So we've got documents, but we also have people living at that time that were there, not proponents of Christianity at all, that would have shot this thing down in a second. Now you see at page 14 that... The Bible declares that Jesus was fully human, that he had a human body, he got tired, he got hungry, he had human emotions, he got angry, he loved, he was sad, he had human experiences, he was tempted, 
He learned, he worked, he obeyed. But here is the real question. Okay, here's the real question. Was he more than just a man? Was he? Was he more than just a great human? Uh, was he more than just a great religious teacher? That's the question. Well, first off, in page 15, we'll say, what did Jesus have to say about himself? So let's look at a couple of scriptures real quickly where we see what Jesus had to say about himself. And I want you to follow with me here and write a couple things down because, again, as we get toward the end of the evening, this is going to turn from just my sharing information with you for you to, to have to interact with this. And I hope that this is going to happen a little bit right now. And, you know, I didn't pay, you know, when I went to church, I didn't pay much attention. It was just get me in and get me out. That was it. Whatever happened in between, I just don't know. I just wanted to get out of there without my mother boxing my ears and doing whatever I could, just sit still and get out as quickly as I could. So I didn't hear anything that, I, that I'm aware of. But let's hear tonight. Maybe what you're going to hear is something you've never heard of from the Bible. And see some things that Jesus had to say about himself that may make us go, hmm, I didn't realize that. Well, here's what the Bible records Jesus having said in the Gospel of John, the 6th chapter, the 35th verse. Okay, Gospel of John 6.35. This is what Jesus said. I am the bread of life. Who, he who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Okay, now he's not saying he's a vending machine. That's not what he's saying. He is saying that when it comes to the emptiness on your inside, and we talked about that last week, that in every man there's a God-shaped vacuum, God-shaped hole that is filled only by the person of Jesus Christ, is what Blaise Pascal said. So what is Jesus saying here? This is what he's saying. He's saying he will fill our emptiness. That may be true or may be false, but that's what he's saying. I'm the bread of life. If you come to me, you'll not hunger. If you come to me, you will never thirst. So you may want to write that in your book tonight, your little book next to that John 6, 35. He says he fills our emptiness. John 8, 12. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Okay. Now, have you noticed something in these last two verses? Jesus is saying, I am. He's not just saying, you know, my teaching is pretty cool. You may want to pay attention. He's saying, I am the bread. I'm the water. I am the light. He's, he's putting all of his teaching on himself. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But he's saying, I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you'll not walk in darkness, but you shall have the light of life. What's, what's he saying there? He's saying there that he gives direction and purpose. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's not true. But that's his claim. He's claiming that. I will give your life fulfillment and fullness, and I will fill your emptiness, and I will give you direction and purpose. Let's look at another one. Look at two more here. Matthew 11, the Gospel of Matthew, the 11th chapter, the 28th verse. He says, come, again, here he is, to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest 
for your souls. That's quite a claim, don't you think? He's not saying come to church, come to the commandments, come to the rules. He's he's not saying any of those things. He's saying come to me. He's making an invitation to come to himself. What's he saying here? He says, hear this. He said, I will give you, I will give you peace. I will make you understand belonging like you've never known what it meant to belong to someone. And how about this one? You'll never be alone. Now, if anything's happened during COVID, you know what's happened? Loneliness. A sense of being all alone. That has been multiplied exponentially in the lives of so many people. Well, this claim that Jesus makes, right? Tonight, topic, who is Jesus? He makes this claim. I will be your peace. I will make you know you belong. And I will never leave you. I hope that's true. But him saying it doesn't make it true. It's fascinating. Then let's look at one more. John chapter 11, the 25th and 26th verses. Jesus said here, here we are again. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he said this. Do you believe this? Now that's an interesting connection to that statement. And what he's saying here is, I'm the resurrection and the life. I, I'm gonna, I go beyond physical life. If you believe in me, you'll live even if you die. Okay, okay, stick with me. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he or when he dies. Okay? And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So what's Jesus talking about here? He's not saying you won't die physically. But he's talking about what you guys say you believe is on the other side of your last heartbeat. Something, not sure, hope. He who believes in me shall never die. Our bodies are going to the ground. But our souls and our spirits, according to the scripture, are going somewhere. But not to the ground. And then his question was, do you believe this is a probing question that if these other claims are true, what am I going to do with that? Do I believe this? And we'll talk much more about, I talked to you last week, we mentioned what does it mean to believe? We're going to keep compounding, pounding on this. So he's saying here is that I will give you and I will make you eternally secure with God. There's another claim. He fills our emptiness. There's a claim. He gives direction and purpose. He gives peace, belonging, never alone, eternally secure with God. These are the promises that this guy is making. Is that believable? Is that true? Or is it just a nice fuzzy feeling you get for a little while on a Sunday morning because you go to church? But it's empty emotion left for the weak those who don't have enough spine to live and just realize this is it, and then you die. Well, Jesus' teachings, and this is what I've been saying, Jesus' teachings center around himself. This is what's so fascinating. Now, 
Next week, I'm going to give you a, a quick teaching in comparative religion. So I, I, I hope you'll come back next week. Um, but it's fascinating. When you take the person of Jesus and then you look at every other religious leader, again, it doesn't make Christianity true and the other one's not true. But if you look at Christianity, you look at the person of Jesus and you look at Muhammad or Buddha or uh, Krishna or, or Zoroaster or Confucius, if you look at Jesus and you line them up next to the other ones, here's the difference. You can take Muhammad and Buddha and Krishna and Zoroaster and Confucius and remove them from their teaching. And guess what you have? Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Zoroastrianism, and Confuciusism. Or Confucianism or confusion. I'm not quite sure what it is. Um, but if you remove Jesus from his teaching, you have nothing. Because he based all of his teaching upon himself. That's a huge difference. Do you see what I'm saying? It's a massive difference here. It doesn't make Christianity true and the other one's false. But it is a completely different paradigm of thinking. Now, on page 15, it says here that Jesus, there were indirect claims that Jesus made and direct claims that Jesus made to being God. Now, let me tell you a story from Mark chapter 2, uh, verse 5 and following. And if you don't mind, I'm just going to tell you the story instead of having you turn to a page number. Jesus, it's recorded by the, by the author Mark, came to a town called Capernaum. It kind of become a headquarters for him and his disciples. And the place was packed with people, packed with people. So packed, nobody else could get in. But they had these friends, there were these four friends of a man that was paralyzed, couldn't move. They wanted, they had heard of the miracles, maybe even seen the miracles that Jesus had done, and they wanted their paralyzed friend to be healed. They couldn't get in the house. What do you do? Well, you got stairs on the outside of those houses. And so what they did was they brought him up the stairs and began to remove the, the roof tiles. And then they lowered him in front of Jesus. Okay, I, I can only imagine what that looked like. I can only imagine the woman of the house, what she was going through at that moment. But he, they lower him through the roof. And this is what happened. So you've got all these people here. You've got religious leaders. The religious leaders were very interested in what Jesus had to say because he was... They were feeling a little bit of competition here. They didn't like what Jesus was saying because the people were beginning to follow Jesus and not follow them. So they made sure that they were at these events where Jesus was going to be so they could catch him in something. So this guy's lowered in front of Jesus and Jesus says to him, now remember the friends are up there. I, I guess they're looking, peering in now from the, from the roof. And Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Like, I didn't know this was going to be a religious thing. I just want to be healed. Well, what happened then is that these religious leaders are going, wait a minute. Who does this guy think he is? Only God can forgive sin. And the Bible then goes to say, Mark writes that Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, said to them, what is easier for me to do? To say to, him, to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, 
Arise, take up your bed and walk. And then he said this, so that you may know that the Son of Man, and the Son of Man is a title that Jesus had given to himself. The Son of Man has power to forgive sin. I say to you, and he turned to that paralytic and he said, I say to you, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately, the Bible says, that man jumped to his feet and they made room for that guy to get out. <laughs> See, by Jesus saying, I forgive sin, he made himself to be God. Now, what was, what was easier for Jesus to say? Well, easier for Jesus to say was for him to say would be, rise, take up your bed and walk. And the guy is healed. But, and you and I could say, well, what would have been easier for you or me to say? Well, we would have said, well, your sins are forgiven because who knows? But if you were to say to somebody, take up your bed and walk, well, guess what? They better take up their bed and walk. But when Jesus forgives sin, there's a cost because somebody's got to pay for that sin. And so the challenge here for Jesus was not saying, take up your bed and walk. He had the power to do that. But to forgive sin, there had to be a payment. And so we see an indirect connection there between Jesus uh, and his de declaration indirectly that he is God. There's many direct. But one more I'll give you is out of the eighth chapter of John. Jesus, again, is dealing with the religious leaders. Uh, and he says to them, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, they're going, wait a minute. You're 30 years old. Abraham lived a long time ago, pal. Um, and Jesus continued to tell them these things. And he, when he said, before Abraham was born, I am, the Bible says they took up stones to stone him. Because he's blaspheming, because they understood, blaspheming, because they understood that Jesus was saying, I am God. Because when they hear Jesus say, before Abraham was, I am, those religious minds are going back to Genesis, pardon me, Exodus chapter 3, where Moses is having an encounter with God. Moses is telling, uh, God is telling Moses, I want you to go to the Egyptians. This is when the Hebrews were in captivity of the, uh, by the Egyptians. He says, I want you to go and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people free. And Moses says to God, who do I tell them sent me? And God says, you can read it, Exodus chapter 3. God says to Moses, tell them, I am who I am. I am has sent you. And so... Those Jewish minds are going all the way back those thousands of years and coming right back and saying, this man blasphemes. He claimed to be God. Now, doesn't mean he was, but it's certainly what his claim was about himself. Well, let's cut to the chase. He either was or he was not, right? And so let's just do a little decision tree thinking here. Jesus claimed to be God, right? So... If he claimed to be God, he either was or he wasn't. It's either true or it was false, right? Now, if it was false, he knew it or 
he didn't know it. If he knew it, he was a liar. He knew he was fabricating all this stuff. If he was a liar, he was also a hypocrite because he's talking, truly, truly, I say to you, I'm telling you the truth. I am the way. I am the truth. He's telling you all these things, but the guy's lying the whole time. He was a hypocrite. Not only was he a hypocrite, he was a demon because he's telling people, I am the way for you to have a relationship with God. It's me. Follow me. You'll have life. What a demon. He, de he deceived them if he were a liar. And not only that, he was a fool. Why is he a fool? Because he died for something he knew was a lie. Hmm. Okay. Maybe he wasn't, maybe he wasn't a liar. But maybe he didn't know it. <clears throat> maybe he really thought he was. But he was, you know, a little bit off. Well... That means he's a nutcase. He's a lunatic. Um, he's a lunatic. He was sincerely deluded. But when you think about this, this man walked with his disciples for at least three years, closely with them, in close quarters, and they followed him completely. He stood between Roman authorities and Jewish authorities, and we kept hearing, no one speaks like this. No one speaks with the authority that this man speaks. You could put through a multitude of tests and there's nothing that can bring you to a rational, unbiased position that this man was a liar or a lunatic. It was C.S. Lewis. Now remember, C.S. Lewis, professor of ancient English literature, at Oxford and Cambridge University, was a devout atheist, totally disbelieved Christianity until God got a hold of this man. And this is in that book, Mere Christianity. This is what C.S. Lewis had to say about him as it pertained to Jesus being a liar or a lunatic. He said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. How many people want to pin that on Jesus? Well, you know, I can't buy this God stuff, the Savior stuff. But, you know, he was a good moral teacher. He had a lot to say. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. He wanted to say you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Hmm. Then if he's not Lord, a liar, or a lunatic, could he be Lord? That's the claim. And if he is, you and I have a choice to make. And that choice to either reject or accept those claims. It's a decision of each of us. Who is Jesus? I mean, that's the question. I'm telling you, I had not thought through any of this going to church for most of my life. I had never really considered who Jesus is and what that had to do with Frank Laurie's life. 
in the dash, much less in the line. But suddenly, having been brought face to face with him, I had to think about whether these claims he made about himself were true, and if so, whether I would accept them or reject them. And I think that's the place where every one of us find ourselves. But here's the question. What evidence? Is there more evidence to support what he said? His, okay, we talked about his teachings. We talked about history. We talked about archaeology. Uh, we've talked about miracles. We've talked about his character. Uh, we really haven't gone into yet. We're going to do this in uh, session five about prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures hundreds of years before Jesus that tell of him coming. Um, these are pieces of evidence, good pieces of evidence. But here's the deal. Here's, here's the deal. I, sorry. But Christianity rises and falls upon one piece of evidence. Did Jesus come out of the tomb alive that first Easter morning? If not, Christianity is a farce. It is not to be believed. We should do everything we can to get rid of Christianity completely. If Jesus is just dust in Jerusalem today. It was Paul, who was the former Saul, the persecutor of the church of Jesus, who wrote 13 books in the New Testament. This is what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Um, he said, For I delivered to you as of first importance, that which was most important, what I also received. What would you get? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is the terminology that's used for the death of those who are believers in Christ. Paul goes on to write this. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified that God, uh, about God, that he raised Christ from the dead. And then Paul goes on to say this. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If only in this life, okay, if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Do you see the seriousness of this? I mean, this is something that should, could, should, should Christianity be around? Should I believe this? Is he really raised from the dead? And Saul of Tarsus, who did not believe and became the most ardent follower of Jesus, arguably, wrote 13, almost half the books of the New Testament, just puts it out there. He just puts it out there for us. Hey, if this is true, pay attention. 
If this is not true, run for the hills, get as far away from it as you possibly can. You know, many have tried to explain away his resurrection. Um, and a few of these people that have done it have, have really had no success. Let me just tell you quickly um, some of the arguments for the non-resurrection of Jesus. Because there's amazing historical support for the New Testament. Um, what most agree is this, that the body was not there. So most agree the body wasn't there. Um, that's, that's understood. But some argument would be that the women went to the wrong tomb. Okay? It's early in the morning. It's dark. They could have just simply gone to the wrong tomb. Well, when they went to the wrong tomb, it's real simple what you do then. And when they start proclaiming that Jesus is alive, you just usher them to the right tomb. I mean, this is, I mean, I went to LSU, but I can still figure this out myself. I mean, they, they went to the, just take them to the right tomb. Or that the disciples stole the body. That is another argument. The disciples stole the body. The, they came in. These guys, remember, they ran away when Christ was crucified. If you read any of the accounts of the crucifixion, they all bolted. They, they ran. Uh, that was amazing timing. Um, if, you're not wa if you're watching live stream, you may not have heard that. But, um, um, but they bolted. They weren't, they weren't there defending their Savior their dead savior. They're trying to figure out how they're going to pick their fishing nets up again or their tax collecting practice. The disciples stole the body? Not exactly. Not these guys. Because they ran. And here's the thing. Every one of them died knowing he really wasn't resurrected. Now, you know what? People will die for, for a lie, believing it's true. But not many people are going to die for a lie, knowing it's a lie. So I don't have enough faith to believe that one either. Uh, the Jewish officials stole the body. Well, okay, maybe the Jewish officials make sense. They come, they don't want Jesus to, they don't want to take any chances of the disciples stealing the body and then declaring Jesus is resurrected from the dead. Well, the moment the, the disciples realize the body's not in the tomb anymore, and they start having this hallelujah fit, Jesus is alive, they just, again, show up with the body. It's just that simple. Or maybe um, 500 people had a hallucination. That just doesn't happen. Maybe one or two people can have a hallucination, but not many people have hallucinations, particularly 500 at one time. These, these again, they, they stretch my faith beyond what I can actually think could be real or true or possible the last one maybe he really didn't die maybe he just swooned okay he's hanging there um he's been beaten to a pulp uh he's had a a spear taken gone through his side and up into the heart um i talk more about that later but and they took him down from the cross thinking he was dead wrapped him and they put him in a tomb and the cool tomb resuscitated him he wasn't really
dead. And he was somehow able to untie himself. This man who had been whipped, his back was ribbons. He had lost so much blood, had nails driven through his feet and through his wrists, and he was able to unwrap himself, move this 2,000-pound stone out of the way, take out at least five guards, and then appear to his disciples, resurrected, whole, healed. This doesn't make any sense. Um, a few years ago, there was an article written in the Journal of the American Medical Association. It's called On the Physical Death of Christ. Now, I want to I give you guys a copy of this. Um, we may have a couple of hard copies tonight, but um, this is really interesting. This takes us through the, the physical uh, experience of someone who's crucified, particularly... Obviously, first century Roman crucifixion. And so if you'd like to have a copy of this where you can see nobody lives through crucifixion. Nobody lives through crucifixion. Arnold Schwarzenegger would not make it through this crucifixion. Hulk, the Hulk would not make it through this crucifixion. Nobody's making it through crucifixion. And these doctors who wrote this article just have some fascinating historical evidences of what happened during a crucifixion and how it was impossible to live through it. What, what, the, what, the, what the Roman soldiers would do is that typically when you die of, uh, by crucifixion, you actually die of suffocation. You, that what they would do is they want to get you off the cross. Now you're, you're hanging on their little pedestal that they have there. And what you're doing is you're slouching down because you're worn out. And then you would pull yourself up to get a breath and release it and then go back down. Well, what the Roman soldiers would do to expedite your death is they would take a, a maul or a club and they would break the lower legs of the crucified victim so that he would not be able to pull himself up and eventually he would suffocate. Nobody lives through Roman crucifixion. It's a fascinating article. You know, there have been many people who have tried to explain it away. I've... I've um, I want to, by the way, by the way, if you want this article, uh, just email us at alpha at lakeviewchristiancenter.com and we can get you a digital copy of that. Real quickly, <clears throat> Josh McDowell, antagonist as it pertained to Christianity, did not believe, was, was challenged to disprove it then. You don't believe it? Well, Josh McDowell has, uh, Josh has got to be in his late 70s now at 80s became one of the most ardent followers of Jesus Christ, has spoken all over the world many times, and has written books probably taller than me. Uh, but a, a great little book that we've got available for you guys tonight. And if you'd like to get a copy of this, uh, if you're watching tonight or watching whenever you're watching, we'd be happy to get a copy. It's called More Than a Carpenter. Uh, and this book goes through in much more detail than I have tonight, evidences to support Jesus Christ being who he says he is. And uh, fascinating. The, big, the book that really got the acclaim was a book called uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. So that's, that's Josh McDowell. Um, a guy by the name of Frank Morrison, he was a, uh, a British journalist, did not believe at all and began to look at the evidence. And the first chapter of his book, 
This book is called Who Moved the Stone? Here's the, um, here's the title of the first chapter of the book. Can you see that? You can't see Okay. Uh, I'll read it to you. It says, The book that refused to be written. The book that he so desperately wanted to write to shut up his Christian friends and enemies. The book that refused to be written. And then uh, a guy by the name of Lee Strobel got a degree in legal studies from Harvard. I think Harvard, maybe it was Yale, it was one or the other. One or the other. Um, he became the chief legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. Um, and his wife had become a follower of Christ. And he himself said, uh-uh, I'm not believing this. So he went out to do a journalistic investigative study as to whether or not Christianity could be real, having no intent on believing it. And he literally went all over the world invest, uh, interviewing professors and theologians and antagonists and all that. And he's written many books, The Case for Christ. Then he's written The Case for Easter. So next week, I'm going to have this book for you guys if you'd like a copy of The Case for Easter. So people that did not believe, did not want to believe, and realized the evidence was there. And when they realized the evidence was there, they began to realize... Maybe that gnawing feeling in my gut is that hole that Blaise Pascal talked about. And Strobel has spoken all over the world, as has Josh McDowell. So those are just some of the many that uh, have gone from antagonist to protagonist. Uh, from believing they were the captain of their fate and the master of their soul to believing that Jesus Christ was the captain of their fate, their fate and the master of their soul. Okay, about to close it up here. Um, so the question of the resurrection and of who Jesus is, is the question that is that Jesus is asking directly to each of us. And, and this, this question has echoed through the canyons of time and lands in the hearing of each and every one of us here tonight. Let's listen from Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And who others say? Not does your priest say, your rabbi say, your grandmother say. Who do you say that I am? Now hear that question tonight. Not just some general, read it out of the Bible, close it, forget it. But here, Jesus asking you that question tonight. James, who do you say that I am? Emma, who do you say that I am? Your Honor, who do you say that I am? Kathy, who do you say that I am? See, that's the question that Jesus is asking. Not me, I'm not asking you that question. It may be my voice. But this is the question. If those claims are true, 
If he is the one that fills emptiness, brings direction and purpose, peace and belonging and meaning and eternal security with God, who do you say that I am? Is he a Lord? Is he Lord? Or is he liar or lunatic? He's one or the other to us. What are the ramifications for you and me if Jesus Christ did not stay in the tomb on that first Easter morning and was resurrected? What does he really have to do with me and the way I live my life? Have I possibly not critically examined who Jesus is closely enough or maybe not at all? I've just dismissed it as a fairy tale? Well, we're going to address this next week. Again, you're not going to want to miss next week, I promise you. Um, the question is, why did Jesus die? What does that really have to do with me? What does it have to do with me? Maybe it has something to do with me in the, li- in the line, but what does it have to do with me now when I'm 30 years old or 40 years old or 20 years old or 60 years old or 85 years old? What does it have to do with me? Well, you're not going to want to miss this, I promise you. I was surprised by the answer when I heard the answer. And just maybe you'll be surprised by the answer as well. All right, let's take a quick break and get back to our tables and enjoy some conversation together. Thank you all for joining us. Again, if you want to get any of the books or the AMA journal article, uh, just alpha at lakeviewchristiancenter.com. We hope to see you guys back with us next week. All right, let's take a quick break. We've got some coffee and other stuff around here for you guys if you're Having a hard time staying awake. I noticed you guys were either nodding in approval with me or just falling asleep. I'm not sure what that was. So 